Greetings, Crosspoint Church and friends on this first full day of summer. It's the season of short sandals and uh, season for barbecues. Woohoo! Today is Father's Day, so I want to take this opportunity to wish a Father's Day to all you fellow dads with us today and uh, just urge you to take some time today to honor your dad. I want to share with you today a Father's Day sermon. So I'm leaving my series, How to Handle What Life Hands You, for this week. And I want to speak to you a Father's Day sermon, or I could say a Forefathers Day sermon. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 28 reads, Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your forefathers. Let's pray together. Father, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. When we acknowledge today that your truth is the truth, it is timeless, it is never failing, it is a light that never flickers, it is a lamp that never fades, guide us today in our thinking and remind us of your truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Two men had an argument. They were next door neighbors and the dispute was over a property line. So to settle, they went to court. The plaintiff made his case first. He was very persuasive. He was eloquent in his reasoning and when he finished, the judge nodded in approval and said, that's right. That's right. On hearing this, the defendant jumps up and says, wait a second, judge. You haven't even heard my side of the case yet. So the judge urged the defendant to state his case. And he too was very persuasive. He too was very eloquent. And when he finished, the judge looked at him and said, that's right. That's right. Well, when the court clerk heard this, he jumps up and says, Judge, they both can't be right. And the judge then looks at the clerk and says, That's right. That's right. Both can't be right. Someone is speaking truth and someone isn't. But a question, is there such a thing as absolute truth? Well, we would say in mathematics, why, yes, there is truth that was and truth that is and truth that always will be. Two plus two equals four. That was true when men scratched figures on the walls of caves. And it's still true if you use the calculator on your iPhone. Two plus two equals four. But is there truth that stands for all time in every age, in every culture, as it relates to moral standards, as it relates, as it, uh, in the area of governing human relationships? Is there truth in the realm of theology? Is there truth in answer to life's big questions? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? I would like to honor my dad today and 
in reference to that, a few days ago I was rummaging through some old papers and I came across one of my dad's sermons from well over a half century ago. And this one got my full attention. I have a copy in my hand of his original sermon notes, kind of faded, kind of yellow. You have, you'll have in a moment the picture before you of that sermon outline. It got my full attention because that sermon that he preached way back then was based on Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, which reads, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in his, in his introduction, and it's there on, the, on his little outline, he said these words, we live in a changing world. I wonder if my dad were here today, what he might say about our times. And then he went on to say, not only is Jesus the same yesterday and today forever, he went on to list six truths that were true, then, today, and will always be. And, and he listed several. Jesus' compassion for us, the promises he made, the standards that he set. And then at the end of his notes, Dad listed, at the bottom of the second page, he listed 15 places that he preached this sermon. And I was, as I was looking at the notes, I noticed that one of them in a little bracket was M-A-R, Marysville. He preached it here at Crosspoint in this church way back then, maybe 65 to 70 years ago. What's unusual about that outline is my dad was reticent. He didn't like preaching the same sermon more than once, and yet he preached this one 15 times. I think we can conclude that my dad felt that he was onto some great truth. True in 1936, when my dad began his pastoral ministry, and true when my dad retired from active ministry in 1976, and true today in 2020. Some things are true now and forever. And that takes me back to the verse that I read just a few minutes ago from Proverbs chapter 22 in verse 28 that says, do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your forefathers. Now, you need to understand that in Old Testament times, back in those days, property was allotted to the children of Israel by God himself. And everyone recognized that these property lines lines were determined by God. And it was impressed upon the people, don't be messing with them. God gave you this land. But this proverb has another meaning, a further meaning, a deeper meaning, and it's this. God's words are true. There are basic, fundamental truths that are eternal. They always were true. They are true today. And they always will be true. And the message for us from this old proverb is this, don't move them, don't adapt them, don't adjust them. They are eternal truths. Times change, truth does not. And so today, we honor our fathers, we honor our forefathers when we hold to the truth that they held dear. So for these next moments, I want to speak to you about 
four boundary stones that we must not move. They're based in the Bible. They were declared, as I already mentioned, by our forefathers from century one all the way down through these years. They were preached by my father. They're preached today by this father. They're preached in these days by my, this father's son, Brock, who's preaching this day in the city of Moncton, by my son-in-law, Mike, and my grandson, Austin, declares and preaches these great truths. So here they are, four boundary stones that we must not move, and here's the first. The first boundary stone we must always hold to is this, a narrow, it's a narrow gate. And I take you to Jesus' words in Matthew 7, verse 13, when he said, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. And then he went on to say, the highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. One translation says, for many who choose the easy way. But the gateway to life is very, very narrow, and the road is difficult. And only a few ever find it. Very sobering words, I think. Don't you? The gate, the door to the kingdom, Jesus is saying, is narrow and only a few find it. But I would hasten to have you notice that the door is narrow and only a few find it, not because it's exclusive, not because it's only for the chosen few, but because it's the choice of only a few. And then Jesus goes on to say, but the highway to hell, many choose that way. Why is this narrow way only a choice of a few? Well, the scripture here tells us, did you notice the road is difficult? It's a hard choice. But I need to remind you that it is a choice. Anyone and everyone could make this choice if they will. Whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may enter the narrow gate if they will. At, at the end of his time as leader of Israel, drew near, Moses stood before the children of Israel and spoke these words recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now listen, he said, Today I'm giving you a choice between prosperity and disaster, between life and death. Sounds like an easy choice to me, doesn't it, you? Given a choice between prosperity and disaster, wouldn't you choose prosperity between life and death? Wouldn't we all say, I'll take life? But Moses goes on, listen to his words. Oh, that you would choose life, that your descendants might live Choose to love the Lord your God and to obey him and commit yourself to him for he is your life. Those are, those are big words. Love him, obey him, commit to him. And then these words, he is your life. Big words, difficult choice, narrow gate. And, and so I remind you today that, that this choice we're asked to make is a lifetime choice. It is a big commitment. It's not a casual decision. Jesus does not become an add-on to your life. 
In Moses' words, the translator says, he is your life, not an add-on, he is your life. I think we need to beware in these days when we're telling people that they can become Christians, we ought to stay away from language like this. All you have to do is, Jesus never used, never used language like that. He never gave people a minimum requirement. He, he told it like it was. He said, the road is difficult, but the encouraging word is there. Anyone can choose it. John Oxenham, a poet, writer who lived a century ago, put it this way, to every man there opens a way and ways and a way. And the high soul treads the highway and the low soul gropes the low. And in between on the misty flats, the rest drift to and fro. But to every man there opens a highway and a low, and every man decides the way his soul shall go. Anyone, everyone, you can choose this gate, but it's narrow, always was, always will be, and that's a boundary stone we must not move. Here's a second boundary stone that we must not move. Here it is. I'm simply calling it a deeper, a deeper life. And I take you to the words of Paul the Apostle writing to the church in Rome, young believers. He's writing to them and saying, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. When a person makes this difficult choice, when a person enters through this narrow gate and becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to remind you today that they haven't arrived. No, they've only begun. And now they have committed themselves to follow, to obey, to serve. There's more. God wants to take us deeper. He wants to sanctify us. Now there's a solid biblical word that has done a disappearing act in Christian vocabulary in our day. But all that word means for us, sanctify, it means this. The simplest definition I ever heard of the word sanctify is this. Sanctify is what God does in me to make me like his son. Not complicated, is it? He wants to make me like his son, if I'll cooperate. And so Paul writes here and says, give your bodies to God. Now to that culture that Paul is writing to, he used the word body because that would mean to them, when he used the word body, that would mean to them totally, give yourself totally, completely, wholeheartedly, a living sacrifice. When these Jews brought an animal to the temple to sacrifice, they picked the best they had. And there was no part held back. 
They didn't take off the tenderloin steak and keep that for themselves and bring the rest of the animal. It was all totally, completely the best they had given. And Paul is saying that's what we should do as Christ followers. We should give ourselves totally, unreservedly, no part held back forever. That's what a living sacrifice means. Have you done that? Have you? That's when life Really, that's when life with a capital L begins. When you, when you repented of your sins, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you entered through the narrow gate, he came into your life and it's as, and it's as if, and I used this example a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus comes into your life, it's like a guest coming into your house to live for a time. And now this guest, Jesus, who moves into your house, into your life, into your life house, you realize after he's been there some days, is asking you for the deed. Have you ever given him the deed? Does he have everything? Your future, your dreams, your wishes, your ambitions, your family, your finances, everything, forever? That's the path to the abundant life that Jesus promised, the life to the full that he promised. That's the deeper life. And it's a second boundary stone we must not move. Now, here's the third boundary stone. I'm calling it simply this, a separated walk. A separated walk. Jesus' prayer, the scripture is taken from Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John chapter 17 on the night before Jesus was to be crucified. And he says, I'm not asking you, Jesus now, speaking to the Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. You see it there? He wants us he wants us to be in the world, and yet he's reminding us that we don't belong to the world. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had taught his followers, he said to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I don't need to remind you that salt is useless to do what it's intended to do as long as it stays in the salt shaker. It's, it's of no use until it's out of the salt shaker. And light is, and Jesus makes that point here, light is useless if you put a basket over it so it can't be seen. And Jesus is making the point that we're to be salt and light out there in the world. Not of the world, not we don't belong to the world, but we're to be salty and our light must shine in the darkness. Jesus is saying that you and I are to be, we're separate from the world in the sense that we're refreshingly different. We are to help change this sin-wracked world for the better. So Jesus is saying we must maintain a separated walk, but he never meant that we're to be separated from the world geographically. Down through history, the church has been plagued by their sometimes decades, centuries, even in the dark ages when the church thought that to stay pure, they needed to separate from the world. 
didn't work. That isn't what Jesus means. Jesus is saying, in the world, but different. And not in a weird way, but in a refreshing way, in a positive way. We, as followers of Jesus, ought to outlove them, outserve them, outcommit them until they say things like, those Christians, they have something there that I need, something that I want. Last August, I spoke at a camp meeting down in southern Pennsylvania, right on the edge of Amish country. Now, you all have seen pictures or perhaps in the movies of the Amish, or maybe you've been in the middle of an Amish country somewhere. There's more communities than just in southern Pennsylvania. They're easy to recognize. They're always dressed totally in black. The women all wear dresses only. Uh, maybe some things you didn't know. They don't do zippers. They only do buttons. They, they travel around in horse-drawn wagons, not cars or trucks. Uh, they have electricity in their barns because that's a necessity, but not in their homes because that would be a luxury. But they're a deeply devout, Christ-following people living separate from the world. And my point here is not to criticize how they choose to live. But hear me, understand this, that is not what Jesus meant when he said that we're to be separated. That's not what Jesus meant when he said you're to be in the world but different from them. The church I grew up in, which would pretty much be this church, my family moved here when I was nine. My dad, that's when my dad became the pastor here. And this church back in those days we practiced much of that kind of separation. We had rules about for the girls. We had rules about skirt length and makeup and earrings. We were against movies and proms and dances and swimming on Sunday. I even think we might have been against ice cream because anything tastes that good couldn't be right. I'm being facetious, but hear me. Because of our mistaken interpretation of what Jesus meant, we lost a generation. I could name you a dozen men my age who remained outside the church for a good part of their lives because they thought if that's what a Christian is, who wants it? And they had a point. When the Bible speaks of a separated walk, what it's talking about there is us who follow Jesus Christ producing fruit. And then it names the fruit. We're supposed to produce in abundance love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Hear me, that's the kind of fruit that the world can't seem to produce in abundance, and they desperately crave it. A separated walk. We are to be we are to be delightfully different. And that's a boundary stone. We must not move. And I have one more for you. Here it is. One more boundary stone we need to be reminded of. Here it is. A certain judgment lies ahead. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, 
For we must all stand, he says, before Christ to be judged. Now there's a sobering statement. We must all, all stand before Christ to be judged. Most often, if you mention this subject, people want to know, their first question is, is it imminent? And that I can't tell you. I'm not much into date setting. I've lived long enough to see all kinds of date setters come and go, and their dates come and go with them. And I don't know if it's imminent. But I do know that the scripture reminds us that the judgment is certain. It wouldn't surprise you to know, and perhaps you've heard some of this, there are some inside the church of Jesus Christ today, find them online, wherever, who are teaching this kind of thing. They're saying that these events, COVID-19 and the race controversy and the accompanying riots, it's a sign, they're saying, that the end is near. And maybe you're saying, is it, Pastor John? And I'm saying to you, I don't know, and I'm also saying no one knows. I don't know if it will be soon. I do know that it is certain. A certain, impartial, totally just, thorough, final judgment. All will be there, the scripture says, small and great, rich and poor, famous and notorious, good living people and wicked people, believers and unbelievers, my children and yours, my grandchildren and yours, my nephews, my nieces, my relatives, our parents, our siblings, neighbors and friends, all must stand before God on that great and final day. Just two chapters from the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, strong reference to this under the, the paragraph title is the final judgment and I'm reading from Revelation 20. And I saw a great white throne, and I saw the one who was sitting on it. I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Let me ask you, is your name, is your name in that book? My name is in that book. Yours can be. I was about seven years of age. I remember it well. The night I admitted to God that I was a sinner. I asked him for forgiveness. I put my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I put my faith in the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he put my name in the book of life. Is your name in the book? It could be, it can be, even this day. If you would be willing to enter through the narrow gate, Pastor John, how could I do that? You could pray a prayer similar to this one. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I now turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart 
and my life. Would you write my name in the book of life? I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision today, would you let us know that? Boundary stones, we must not move. A narrow gate, a deeper life, a separated walk, a certain judgment. Changing times, oh yes, absolutely. Change less truth, oh yes, certainly. Trouble, truth to build your life on, truth to build your forever on. May God bless you today.